Well, if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, please turn to the chapter 12 and the very end of chapter 11. I hope you enjoyed studying this passage in your community group this past week. If you're not yet in a group, I hope you'll look on page 13 in the bulletin that you were handed this morning. And we have a a long list of groups that meet throughout the country. We have several groups that meet out in Sharjah and all the way down to Albarsha and into the marina. We have several groups that meet in Murdiff, several groups that meet in Deira. We started a few groups last year, including one that meets across the street from Union Station at Al Guerrero Center Mall, uh, where we meet every Friday for lunch after the service. You can email or call the hosts that you'll find there on page 13, and they'll give you directions to come. Or you can go see the connections table on your way out this morning, and they can help you find a group that's close to where you live. I've been looking forward to continuing Genesis for some time now. If you've been with us for a while, you'll remember that last December we finished our study of the first section of Genesis, of chapters 1 on through 11. And in that study of Genesis... We saw the origins of the world. We saw the beginnings of the world, the beginnings of creation. And we saw that there's one true God. There's one true God of the universe who is the creator and maker of everything. And we saw that the pinnacle of his creation wasn't the mountains or the sea, wasn't the sun or the moon, wasn't animals or birds, but the pinnacle, the climax, the centerpiece of his creation was humans, humans made in his image, man and woman, Adam and Eve. And they were created to be in loving fellowship with God forever. They're created to live under his loving rule and reign, to be with God in communion, communion with him all the days of their lives. And yet we saw in our study that the history of the world takes a devastatingly bad turn. We saw in Genesis chapter 3 something called the fall. Where Adam and Eve, they decide they don't want to live under God's rule and reign. They wanted instead to make up their own rules. And they rebelled against God. They chose that they wanted to be the God of their life. And so they did what God had told them not to do. Place authority in their own lives. And in that moment, the scripture says death and judgment came. They spiritually died. And later they would physically die. Those early chapters of Genesis are the story of how the human race spiraled down into death and violence and brokenness and evil. The whole creation is now cursed. And Adam and Eve are subsequently kicked out of the garden. They're put out as outsiders. One of their sons, Cain, actually murders one of their other sons, Abel. Soon the whole world is populated with sinners who reject God and despise his rule. And so God sent A flood of judgment to prevent further spread of such evil at the hands of sinful men. And yet he reached out in grace and spared one family. The family of Noah. Later though, in Genesis 11, despite the flood, a new generation of wickedness springs up and emerges. As people seem intent on trying to reach the heavens on their own. Evil still reigns in the human heart. The people resisted God's plan for them, and they sought to make a name for themselves. And you may remember in the Tower of Babel how God mocks their efforts. They're building this tower that they say, look, it reaches to the heavens. And God says, well, actually, I had to come all the way down to earth even to see it. That's how minuscule and pathetic the humans' efforts were then and are now. 
This corporate revolt against God and refusing to scatter over the earth and subdue it according to God's rule failed. And God again judged the people. He confused their language, forcing them to scatter and abandon their idolatrous monument to self. The Bible's clear, though, that this isn't just the story of Genesis, but that all men, women, and children everywhere deserve death for their sin and rebellion against God. God is holy and nothing unclean can be allowed in his presence. Is there any hope for mankind? One of the points of Genesis 1 through 11 and the entire Bible is that on our own, there can be no way to be reconciled to God. But if you remember in our study, in that same chapter of the fall, there in Genesis 3, we saw a glimmer of hope. In Genesis 3, we saw a glimpse of the gospel that one day a deliverer would come. That this deliverer deliverer would come and would crush Satan. This deliverer would come and would make a way for God's people back to God. Now, there is hope. And that ray of hope is found in a single family line. One family tree. And today we'll pick up our study in Genesis chapter 12, where we'll see this promise of hope continue through a family. And we'll look closely, beginning today, at a series of patriarchs. A patriarch is a man through whom a new way of life comes. Through a patriarch, a new family comes, a new nation comes, a new movement and community of people come from him. And the first patriarch in Genesis is a man named Abraham. He's just called Abram at first. Later, God will change his name to Abraham. But for the sake of clarity, and just so I don't mix it up, I'll just call him Abraham from here on out. He's an immensely important figure in the world's largest religions. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all consider themselves as children of Abraham. We as Christians, however, we're not talking about biological descendants. But we're talking about spiritual descendants. Abraham is extremely important in the Bible. He's mentioned over 300 different times. He's mentioned in almost half of the New Testament books, all four Gospels. And in Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, where the heroes of the faith are paraded through those verses, most heroes get one verse, Moses gets six verses, and Abraham gets a total of 12 verses. Understanding who Abraham is and what God did in and through him is of great importance to us as Christians. Well, today we'll see Abraham's conversion and the beginning of his ministry. And we'll see two things about the start of God's work in Abraham. So if you're taking notes this morning, just two brief points. First, we'll see God's radical call. And second, we'll see Abraham's radical faith. So God's radical call, Abraham's radical faith. So first... The radical call we see in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 1, God calls Abraham to leave. But before we examine what exactly that meant, we do have to back up. And that's why we read those verses at the end of chapter 11. We need to have the context of this call. You may remember that in the midst of the violence of the first 11 chapters, that there was one family, the family of Seth, who worshipped God. It was through Seth's family line that the knowledge of the true God was preserved and was passed on from generation down to generation. And it's through that line that Terah and Abraham come. 
But we find out here that it looks like it's the end of the line. I mean, first of all, the word Terah means moon, and Ur of the Chaldeans was a center of lunar worship. And this family was supposed to know God and to worship the true God, but instead they had moved on to idol worship. We know this from the book of Joshua. At the end of that book, Joshua gets the people of Israel together and says in chapter 24, Long ago your forefathers, even Terah, Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But the Lord took your father Abraham out of the land beyond the river. I mean, do you see what happened? I mean, spiritually, the last little candle had flickered out. The last place anybody knows about God is right there. And spiritually, the last family who should know something about God, they had lost it. They had turned away from the true God. They were worshiping false gods, demons. But it wasn't just the end of the line spiritually, but physically as well. You'll see that short phrase there in verse 30. It looks like it's just a simple side comment. Sarah is barren. She had no child. But this phrase was meant to stop us in our tracks, to bring everything to a screeching halt. It stood out because not only was this the last family that knew anything about God spiritually, but it's about to end physically. It's not going to be any more family. And this was the epitome of hopelessness. There's no future for God's people. And then after all that preface, after all that background, we get the call in Genesis 12, verse 1. Look at that verse. We see that God speaks. God speaks. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And all of a sudden, just like that, there's hope again. God calls out to Abraham. I hope you see that it's an epic call. Things couldn't look any more bleak for God's people, and then God's word comes. It's a wonderful miracle. We don't know what Abraham was doing when God called out to him. Is he planting flowers? Is he taking a jog? Is he washing his camel? All we know is that God just shows up. Doesn't schedule an appointment. He doesn't wait till Abraham comes to his senses and calls out to God himself. He just shows up and he calls out to Abraham. And did you notice the first thing God tells Abraham to do? Go. That's it. Not a lot of relationship building going on. I mean, Abraham had turned to other gods, and the true God shows up and says, leave. And that's it. He doesn't say, hi, Abraham. I'm Yahweh. Nice to see you. You've forgotten about me, so why don't we sit across the table for some coffee and get better acquainted with one another? I hope you're enjoying the creation I've made, including that moon that you're falsely worshiping, by the way. No, there's no small talk, there's no getting acquainted, there's no conversation, there's no dinner around the campfire. God just comes and says, leave, Abraham. Go. Get out. If you're Abraham, you're probably wondering if you should get a second opinion at this point. I mean, wait, God, this is my home. This is where I live. 
I kind of like it here. I mean, I wonder what our reaction would be. I wonder if we would start negotiating with God. We'd want some time to think about it, maybe get some counsel, maybe schedule a phone call with God the next Tuesday to give him our final decision. At least, God, tell me where I'm going to go. I mean, think about it. You have a home, you have family, you have a job, you have friends. And God says, Abraham, get out of here. Just leave. God doesn't tell Abraham where he's going. And Abraham's 75 years old. This is after the flood, and so that was getting up there in age. He's 75, 10 years past modern retirement age. He's settled. He probably has everything under control. And God's asking him to leave everything he has, everything he owns, and everything he knows to embark on an unknown journey to a land that will be revealed later. Now, honestly, I'd be thinking that. I'd be thinking, God, can I Google Earth that first? I mean, can I get a little bit of a picture of where I'm going? Am I going to like it? Do I even want to go there? Now, the further the culture shock of the call, Haran was a world-class city. To hear Haran in the ancient world would be to hear London or Paris or Rome or Singapore, Hong Kong or Dubai. And God was saying, I want you to leave this world-class city and just kind of go. In Abraham's day, there was no mass transportation. There was no cars, no metro. And so people never went very far to set up your home. You set up your home on your land and you passed that land and that home down from generation to generation to generation. Your life was tied to your land. It was your identity. And you'd only leave if you were displaced by war or agricultural disaster. To leave would have been an act of betrayal to everything that Abraham and Sarah had learned since childhood. But as John Calvin has said, God was telling Abraham to close his eyes and take God's hand and just go. But it went even further than that. In asking Abraham to leave everything behind, he was in no uncertain terms asking Abraham to leave behind his gods. In the ancient world, deities were associated with land and with people groups. The gods were portrayed respectively as territorial deities. And so when Abraham was asked to leave his land, the request includes walking away from those gods that he worshipped. He was to cut ties with his traditions, his country, the people he was familiar with, and with his gods. He was asked by God to change everything. It was a radical call. It was a call to conversion. It was a call to follow the true God. But this call did come with a promise. Look again at the first three verses of the chapter. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now God lays out several promises to Abraham here. He's going to give him land. Which would be the promised land. He'll be made into a great nation. Which presumes that miraculously even at his age. 
he's going to have children. His name will be made great. God promises that Abraham's influence will be widespread, even across generations. Which is ironic that God says he'll make Abraham's name great. Not only will the elderly Abraham have children, but his name will be made famous. That's a stark contrast to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, isn't it? In that episode, the Babylonians wanted to make a great name for themselves. But in God's economy, a great name is a gift. It's not something we seek after. So God scatters the people that strive to get a good name. And then God goes to Babylon and tells Abraham he'll make his name great. The echo is undoubtedly deliberate. The builder's aggressiveness is matched by Abraham's passivity. If his name is ever to become great, it will not be because of any self-initiated effort. Now, Abraham is also promised that he'll be a blessing. This transitions the focus of the promises from the individual Abraham to all the families who will be influenced by him. And then there are two promises which are parallel expressions, two sides of the same coin. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Well, the point is that Abraham will be blessed and that Abraham will be a blessing to others. That God will use this family tree to execute his plan to rescue a people for himself. He's been on a rescue mission and he says he's going to use Abraham as the father of this mission. A multitude of nations would somehow enjoy the blessings of sonship even though physically unrelated to Abraham. So here's the situation. Just to recap, God tells Abraham to go, to get out, to leave. Go to a land that I will show you. And he holds out some promises. So what will Abraham do? He's faced with leaving everything he knows and trusting in God and the promises that are unseen. And this is really what faith is, isn't it? Trusting in what is unseen It's a radical call. God is saying, leave your gods, leave your religion, leave your country, leave your people, leave your parents, leave your friends, leave your luxuries and routines, and all other things that you think make up who you are, and go. You will now be defined by faith in me. Now this call to forsake all is very much like the call of the gospel. And listen to these passages all from the book of Matthew. Another of the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said to another man, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, the gospel calls us to rest all of our hope on Christ and to follow him and nothing else. When we believe in Jesus, we are set apart as being in Christ, which is now the permanent circumstance of our lives. You can be in anywhere. You can be in your hometown. You can be in a prison cell, in love with someone. You can be in a hospital bed. But being in Christ is the one thing that overwhelms all those temporary circumstances. 
Like Abraham, you're no longer defined by the world, but you are now defined by faith in the one true God. So Abraham is faced with the same decision that each of us are faced with. To follow God or to reject God. So what will Abraham do? Well, let's look at his response. That's the second point. Abraham's radical faith. We see God's radical call. Now let's look at his faith. And we'll see how this pagan Abraham responds to God's crazy call to leave everything. You see that in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. So just like that. Simply put, Abraham leaves. The text simply says, Abram went. He, di- he didn't, doesn't respond, God, I'm 75, I'm old. He doesn't say, God, what about my house? What about my family? What about my friends back here? What about all the people I love? What about this land that I'm passing down to the next generation? He doesn't ask God any questions. doesn't question him as to whether this is a good idea doesn't ask him where he's taking him. doesn't ask for a packing list for the journey. He isn't wondering if he's, if he's going to the sea or inland. He's not asking God for any assurance that he's going to like the land. Now, apparently, God just shows up, somehow communicates to Abraham that he's the real God and that he needs to leave from this place, stop worshiping false gods, and to follow him. And he did. So Abram went. I once heard someone say that faith demands a ruthless abandonment of the past. Now Abraham here has to leave the constellation of familiarity and tradition behind. He had to jettison his family, his homeland, and the old ways of worship. And he did. So through that family line, there was hope for God's people of the past, of the present, and of the future. So the first 11 chapters that we looked at last year, we noticed a series of attempts to deal with the sin problem. We saw Adam and Eve, they tried to cover their sin with fig leaves of their good works. Cain tried to justify his sin as being righteous. The Babylonians at the tower, they tried to save themselves by self-sufficiency and nationalism. But nothing worked. And now God shows up in chapter 12 of Genesis with the solution to the sin problem. God shows up and he speaks. He calls Abraham and he reawakens that family line. Well, this is what the passage is telling us today. That God has a plan for rescuing a people for himself. God takes an elderly, childless couple in the land of Babel and he makes them the fountainhead, the launching pad of his whole mission of cosmic redemption. And the rest of the Bible is a story of how God rescues his people from sin through that family line. That one day a savior would be born through this one family. We see that he promised descendants. And in Genesis 15, he says to Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Just a great multitude of descendants will come. But that there was one descendant. One offspring that the promise would point to and ultimately be fulfilled in. That's why in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. Who is it? 
Or there was one who had come 2,000 years after Abraham, born into his family tree. Sarah was barren, and this young woman was a virgin. Neither one was supposed to have a baby, but both miraculously conceived. This one didn't just leave his family in Haran, but he left the ultimate father's house. He left ultimate security. This one was named Jesus, who became utterly homeless. And there on the cross, he was without a father. Now, why did he do it? Well, he lost his father and left his home so we could get the father and be brought into this family. So that as Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says, Now that you belong to Christ, you are the true offspring of Abraham. See, it's only through Christ that we can be brought into the same family tree as Abraham. That belonging to Christ means that your spiritual lineage is in Abraham which is a family that transcends all earthly families. So this means now that as a Christian, our primary identity is not that we're Nigerian or Filipino or Canadian or Indian, but our primary identity is that we are a part of Abraham's family, that we are in Christ. That's our new reality. So we see that Abraham's obedience to leave was not Merely a simple act of faith. His was the conversion of a pagan. When the word of the Lord came to him, he believed and he was changed and he was saved. Here's what's incredible about this call. Abraham was 75. He had no kids. He's a pagan idol worshiper who worshiped the moon god. There was nothing good about Abraham except that he was from the best family on earth, the line of Seth. But here's the point. If it weren't for the call of God which came first, he was spiritually dead. He had no hope. He had a godless father. He's a Babylonian citizen, lives in a pagan city, barren wife, no kids, worshiping false gods. I mean, not exactly a very impressive CV, is it? I mean, you don't think to yourself when you read about him at the end of chapter 11 that this will be a guy that God uses to change the world. But none of these things matter when the call of God comes on your life. And some of us, we might think, if we raise our children well and be an example to them and discipline them and teach them to be moral, that they'll be good kids and that they'll be Christians. We also think that the converse is true. That my kids turned out to be wonderful Christians, so it must be that I did everything right. But this isn't true either. For example, I have four children. They're being raised by Christian parents and they attend and are a part of a church that faithfully preaches the gospel. We're attempting as parents to faithfully lay out the gospel before them, to call them to repentance and faith, to teach them about how in Christ alone one can be saved. I mean, we do that faithfully as parents, but I want you to know something. I want you to hear something. I want you to know that unless the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, personally opens up their eyes and removes the scales from their eyes that blind them from the truth and moves in their hearts to embrace the Son, that their upbringing is not going to be their rescue net in God's courtroom. That that's not going to be their argument. Now, Abraham's story shows us how it is possible to come from a good family line 
but to live as a godless idol worshiper. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you haven't answered God's call for repentance, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus for yourself, I urge you to do that today because you're not a Christian if you say, I was born a Christian. If you say, look at my passport, pastor, it says Christian. You're not a Christian if you grew up in the church or if you come from a country that's predominantly Christian. You're not a Christian if you're a good person and you say, pastor, I try to do what Jesus did. I try to follow after Jesus. I try to hold to the Ten Commandments. Friends, none of those things make you a Christian. You're not a Christian until you've taken your hands off of your life. Of course you feel comfortable being around Christians and coming to church, but have you met the Lord? Have you encountered Jesus for yourself, for your own self? Has the gospel penetrated your heart? You can't come into the kingdom on anybody else's coattails. It has to be your faith. And friend, you don't clean up your life and then come to God. I hope you realize that you can't clean up your life. No, you come to God and he cleans up your life. I continually meet people here in Dubai who say to me, I just can't get over my sin. I can't stop sinning. Maybe when I clean up my life a little bit and maybe when I stop sinning on Thursday nights, then, then I'll come to God. And I tell them, friend, you can't. You can't clean up your life. If you wait for you to clean up your life yourself, you'll be waiting forever. So friend, I ask you today, have you embraced Christ for yourself? Now I want each of us this morning to consider the question, am I really a follower of Christ? Or have I considered myself a Christian because of my country of origin or what it says on my government papers? Or because my parents said we were Christians. Or because it's quite comfortable for me to act like a Christian and hold the Christian values. Or because I grew up in the church. Or because I'm not a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, so I must be a Christian. Or because I'm holier than that other guy over there. Oh friend, I want to be clear today. Here's what makes you a Christian. If you come to God and you say all those things that I just mentioned mean nothing. Say, God, it doesn't matter my ethnic background. It doesn't matter my church history. It doesn't matter my family or my lifestyle. God, none of those things make me right with you. And you say to God, I've seen what you've done for me. That because of my rebellion, because of my sin against you, that you, the holy, loving, and just God of the universe, have condemned me to eternal death. But I see what Jesus has done for me. I see that in spite of my life, Jesus, God in the flesh, came to this earth and he lived the life that God, I couldn't live on my own. That I have failed time and time again. And that he went to the cross for me. That he died as my substitute. That there on the cross, he faced God the Father's wrath for me. That there on the cross, he took my sin 
Because of this, I answer God's call in my life to repent of my sin and place my faith in Jesus to save me. Friend, that's what it means to be a Christian. Now I want each of us to take some time to consider our own heart this morning. Now don't be concerned with your spouse or your kids or your friend or the person sitting next to you, but to look into your own heart. Have you owned it? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation? If not, do so today. Maybe you thought you have. Maybe much like Abraham, you come from a good family. But each of us must individually answer that call. Maybe you're a teenager here this morning. Maybe you've been blessed with good Christian parents. But please know that salvation doesn't just rub off of your parents and onto you. You have to own your faith for yourself. Maybe today is the day that you turn to Christ as your Savior. Well, I want to take a moment here of silent reflection here right in the middle of the sermon. And I have a few more things to say. But I want to pause right now just to wrestle with this in our own hearts. And to consider if we're following Christ. And if not, to place our faith in Christ. So let's take a minute now in silent reflection just to consider are we, am I, a follower of Christ? Let's do so now. Friend, if you have just now responded to this call in your life, please come and tell me after the service or any of our elders or those at the connection table. We'd love to talk with you. For those of us who do follow Christ, we have to know that following this call and placing our faith in Christ radically changes us. It saves us, but it also transforms our lives. I mean, you'll notice that Abraham places faith in God and everything changes. While the text doesn't say that Abraham believed, we see confirmation of that in Genesis 15, 6 and Hebrews eleven eight. The evidence here of Abraham's faith was his obedience to the Lord. If he had not believed, he wouldn't have obeyed. You know, it's interesting that these two things are always held in tight connection in Scripture, belief and obedience. If one places their faith in Christ, obedience will necessarily follow. There will be fruit in your life, fruit of your faith. And there was an Abraham's life. First of all, he does leave everything. We've already talked about how countercultural that was back then. And the same goes for us. We might not be called to leave everything behind, but we may. To become a Christian is to be changed in such a way that you're now not making your decisions on the basis of your preference or ease or safety or luxury. You know, where do I live so that I can be most comfortable? Or what job do I pursue that will give me a good standard of living and increase my influence and elevate my status? Or how do I protect my family and keep them from danger? No, instead you don't make decisions based on those questions anymore. But the call of God reshapes you. So instead you ask the question, where can I go? What can I do? 
And how can I live so that I can most be a blessing for the sake of Christ? But unfortunately, this isn't our natural tendency. Instead, we are taught by this world to look for consumeristic pleasure and security. Everything around us tells us to save everything and hedge ourselves with every protection. Make sure that once we're safe inside, that we'll have, then in that point, we'll have all things that'll make us happy. Our natural desires are for more comforts. I mean, just think about the things that our culture celebrates. The advertisements that they use to prod us to open our wallets. The images that the world calls us to embody. You know, Neil Postman's classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Postman says, we make entertainment and distracting ourselves with it to be representative of all experience. He says that an unquenchable lust to be entertained will lead to our ultimate destruction. And he says that when we define our life by this, our conversation becomes a kind of baby talk and our life pursuits are trivial and meaningless. And we start building our lives around ourselves. We're not undisciplined, but we're actually self-disciplined. We work hard to get what we want. We go to great lengths in order to make time for our favorite television shows. We work hard to buy the latest technology. We persevere through our children who want our attention in order to give our undivided attention to a 10-centimeter screen on our smartphones. We want our special foods, the clothes that express the real us, the comforts we prefer, and we want those things now. Now, God's Word tells us that we should be on a different pursuit, that we should have a one-track mind in seeking the things that are above. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And Paul writes in Colossians, set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. No, what Abraham did was completely countercultural. Accumulating things, hoarding earthly goods, building up bank accounts, collecting friendships, enjoying the comfort of family, and building a name for ourselves. Not necessarily bad things if the Lord has provided them, but we don't live for them. Well, that's what the world lives for. In following Christ, Abraham let these things go. Now, Christian, are you willing to let these things go to follow Christ? Jesus in Matthew 4 told some fishermen there to leave their business on the spot, to leave their family and leave everything they knew to follow him. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, friends, I ask you, are you willing to leave everything to follow Christ? Are you willing to leave your well-paying job to follow Jesus? Or are there other things that you're clinging to for comfort and security? Are you trying to build up a great name for yourself? Earn respect in your company? Or the respect of your friends? Are you willing instead to live through a grid of making decisions based on how you can be best used as a conduit of blessing to others? Now, I don't know what this means for you. I'm not going to spell it out exactly today. I don't know. 
But I wonder if some of us have been far too comfortable with the predictability and stability of our lives that we think it's unlikely or impossible that God would lead us to anything different. You know, maybe we say, Lord, I've already arrived. Lord, I'm old. I've already done what you've asked of me. I've worked hard to get settled here in Dubai and make this move. Lord, I finally figured out what I want to do with my life. Now, I really don't know what this means for you. But I do know that each of us needs to make certain that we're available to hear God's direction and wisdom for our lives through his word. That each of us needs to be committed to doing life in community and inviting others who have the Holy Spirit to give us honest feedback as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to our Lord. That each of us needs to have tender, prayerful hearts that are willing to say yes to the Lord. That are willing to follow him. It's amazing how the call of Abraham really does mirror our call to follow Christ. And God actually says to Abraham, go out from here. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll show you later. Just leave. Later, he's going to say, I'll give you a son. And Abraham says, well, how will that happen? And God says, I'll show you later. Just trust. Just believe. And finally, he says, walk to the top of the mountain and sacrifice your son. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll show you later. Just hike up the hill. Just believe. Just follow. Just have faith. Now, that's Christianity. It's a call to follow Christ wherever he leads us. It's to have a radical faith. It's a call to follow Christ at all costs. It's a faith that works. You know, Abraham's faith is incredible. Not only does he go, but we see in our verses that he's already being a blessing to others. I mean, it appears that Abraham's already sharing his faith there in Haran even before he leaves. You know, it's interesting there in verse 5. Where it says Abraham took all the people he had acquired in Haran. The word for people probably does not refer to servants or slaves because it's not the normal word for that. It certainly doesn't refer to his children because we know that Sarah is barren at that point. Many biblical commentators say it refers to others who have come to faith. It's converts. It's that Abraham has already faithfully proclaimed the good news of the true God. And people have come to faith. This former moon worshiper is now telling everyone about Yahweh. He's been so radically changed that he can't help but tell others about God and urge them to follow God with him. And we see that he builds altars there at the end of the passage. Abraham's altars to the Lord show that he believed in God's promises. This place Shechem mentioned in verse 6 is an evil demonic place. The great tree of Moray was a place where pagan false gods and demons were worshipped. It was actually an important Canaanite sanctuary to the god El. So what's Abraham doing there? Well, he's ignoring that false god, that demon El, and he's putting up an altar to God and preaching about the true God, Yahweh. Right there in the face of idolatry, Abraham is staring it in the face and proclaiming the true God. I hope you see in those final verses that that following God, accepting the call of God on our lives, radically transforms us. Now, one of the ways you know if you're a Christian or not is that your life has been transformed. That you're different than you were before you placed your faith in God. You're a blessing to others. You've been blessed to be a blessing. The inbreaking of God's kingdom ripples in like waves around you everywhere you go because you've received the kingdom and now you're urging others to receive the kingdom as well. Well, friends of Redeemer, we're called to that same calling, to be a blessing to others to the glory of God. Church, let us have that as our chief ambition. Let this holy aspiration mark us as a church. 
would we as the called out ones go out into the world proclaiming the same truth? Let's now go before the Lord and pray together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as a church we would follow Christ. Would your will be done here among us at Redeemer just as your will is done in heaven? Would many men and women come and follow you along with us? Would those who don't yet know you turn to you in repentance and faith through our faithful witness of your good news? Well, Father, we recognize that you alone are worthy of all of our praise and all of our honor and all of our lives. We pray that all that we would do would be done to your glory. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.